Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Blumenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas, as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, psychiatrytalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Elise Snyder, who graduated from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1958. She completed her psychoanalytic training at the Western New England Psychoanalytic Institute. She's clinical associate professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, a visiting professor at the University of Sichuan, and a consultant to the Ethics Committee of the Chinese Psychological Society. She's a member of the American Psychoanalytic Association, of the Academy of Psychodynamic Psychiatry and Psychoanalysis, the International Psychoanalytic Association, and very importantly, she's founder and president of CAPA. CAPA is the China American Psychoanalytic Alliance, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that today uh, uh, in this interview. Dr. Snyder is also past president of the American College of Psychoanalysts. In 2012, she received the American Society of Psychoanalytic Physicians Sigmund Freud Award and also the 2012 American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Psychodynamic Psych- Psychotherapy Presidential Award. She was married to Michael, Dr. Michael Holquist, who is a professor emeritus at Yale University. Uh, she has uh, children who are a psychoanalyst and an associate professor of English. And, of course, she has five wonderful grandchildren. So, welcome to our podcast, Dr. Snyder. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it's a really a pleasure to have you here. I recall early in both our careers that you were one of my teachers during my That's- residency at State University of New York at Downstate. That's right. I remember it was a whole bunch of guys. There were no women in your group. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, before we talk about your most recent endeavors, I thought it might be interesting to hear, how did you get interested in becoming a psychiatrist? Um, I became interested in becoming a psychoanalyst when I was quite young, maybe 15. I read Freud's Uh, studies in hysteria, and it was better than any novel that I had read. And when I was at college, one of my professors was a psychologist, but he was a psychologist who had been trained at the New York Institute. His name was Sidney Axelrad, and he was married to Sylvia Brody, the the child analyst. And when it became clear that what I wanted to be was an analyst, he said, well, you've got to go to medical school. And I said, medical school? I've never taken a science course in my life. And he said, well, go do it. He said, you can't take any more courses in sociology or in anthropology. So I went, 
and I took the science courses and I applied to medical school to become a psychoanalyst. And uh, that's what happened. And you have all that knowledge of biochemistry and, uh, and microbiology and things like that. I loved it. It turned out I really loved the sciences and I loved medical school and I loved my internship. And I, at one point I was thinking maybe I should go into internal medicine, but uh, psychiatry and psychoanalysis won out. Okay, well, let's jump forward and, and look at how did you develop your interest and connection to China. <laughs> if I say that it was an accident, serendipitous, is that enough or do you want some more details? No, I think we'd like some more details. In 2000, my husband was invited to Beijing to give a, uh, a it, it, there was a conference in his honor on um, literary theory. And I said, gee, I want to go to China too. And I want Yale to pay my way. And he said, well, write some papers and maybe Yale will pay your way. So I wrote a couple of papers. And then I began to look around. I had no idea whether anyone in China was or had been interested in psychoanalysis. I was totally ignorant. I found a group of people in Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan province. And they invited me to come. And I went and I gave lectures, public lectures with two or three hundred people, businessmen, policemen, farmers, monks, and so on. And I gave some lectures at the university and everybody, they asked me back the next year. And I went back and uh, then people began to ask for things like, um, uh, could you find me a supervisor? Could you do this? Well, I, I had lots of friends, and uh, I got my friends involved in supervising and so on. Finally, one guy said, uh, I, I really need an analysis. And he talked to me, and I thought, yeah, you really need an analysis. I said, but what can we do? There are no analysts in China. And he said, well, what about Skype? And I said, what's Skype? <laughs> and so we started. And... By 2006, I was going every year, occasionally twice a year. My friends and I got incorporated as a nonprofit, and uh, it was clear that what the people in China wanted was training in uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy, full training. It just didn't exist, and so. Somebody, uh, named Barbara Katz, who I think is an Academy or was an Academy member, wrote a two-year curriculum, and we opened our doors, our doors being in the ether, because we were going to do all of this online, and we started a two-year training program in psychodynamic psychotherapy. So it wasn't an idea that I had. It was something that happened to me, and I just kept saying, okay, we'll try this, we'll try that. Now, now the, the, the people who were interested in this training, were they psychiatrists, psychologists, or social workers, or the equivalent of social workers? Where, where were they coming from? What, what disciplines were they coming from? Okay, there, there were some psychiatrists, there were some psychologists, and there were many counselors. Uh, social work was, is not a very well-developed field in China. Most social workers do what social workers did in the 30s and 40s in America. 
but the counselors work at university health services and the government pours a huge amount of money into university health services and they are the bulk of our students they are their counselors they call themselves counselors even if they are psychiatrists and psychologists mm-hmm. and as you began to uh, do this and and look at the the ideas that you were teaching was there any similarity or connection to freud's ideas um that he was developing in the 1800s and the Chinese tradition of Buddhism or Confucianism or, or anything like that? In other words, the, 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 the tradition of Chinese thinking, even, uh, even in therapy, how did it compare to Western thinking, particularly Freud's ideas? Uh, it's a hard question to answer. There had been, there was a, there's a letter from Freud written in 1921 to the Chinese Minister of Education who had just translated Freud's autobiographical study. And Freud said, I would appreciate your using any and all means possible to introduce psychoanalysis to China. Really? That's 1921. Wow. And in the 20s and 30s, there was a huge interest both among therapists and literary scholars in psychoanalysis Actually, in the Peking University, I think, I may have this wrong, I I need to check. One of the big medical schools in in Beijing had a a course in psychoanalytic theory in the 30s. So, this was long before any medical, any American uh, place had, had courses in psychoanalytic theory in medical schools. So, there was an immense amount of interest. Even the general population knew about it. In Shanghai, there were little bottles of cough medicine with Freud's picture on it. <laughs> well, that's, oh. in- that's interesting. Now, uh, when the Chinese were reading about Freud's ideas, what language were they reading? Uh, they, they were reading, they were tr- that people were busily translating Freud into Mandarin. Uh, there weren't great translations, but people would say that, you know, the translations of Freud by Strachey are not great translations either. Uh, and some were reading in English, and uh, some were reading in German, uh, so that uh, they were reading it in all the language. And it was very, um, it, it was, um, Freud was uh, acceptable to the ways of thinking. I mean, if you think of Buddhism, it's really a theory of mind. So the idea of uh, being interested in the mind per se was not at all alien to the Chinese. And uh, there was some up- upset about the uh, emphasis on sexuality, but, you know, that's, we saw that in America. We see that today. <laughs> uh-huh. And so it, um, it, there has not seemed to be for any of our teachers, and we, we now have a lot, and we have a lot of experience, um, that the, the kind of Western ways that Freud thought seems not alien, it's human, it, and it seems very acceptable in China. I mean, and even the government um, is happy with, with putting money in for the counselors to do psychotherapy with, with college students, 
because they think now I think they I think the Chinese government thinks that analysis makes you happy. I'm not so sure. Uh, was it difficult for you to once you organized uh, the Kappa organization? Was it difficult for you to recruit the faculty to teach? Well, yes. And, I mean, we now have something like 180 teachers and 180 supervisors. It's hard. Um, psychoanalysts, more than psychotherapists, um, tend to be old, and they tend to be somewhat computer-phobic. Uh -huh. And they're really terrified, and they think, well, how can you do, do this stuff online? Or how can I use my computer as something other than a, a typewriter? Um, so that, that's been somewhat hard. The time difference, you know, all of our classes, we have 10 people in each class, and it's small, it's online, which means that people in China are working late at night or very early in the morning, and people in the U.S. are working late at night phone or early in the morning. So, uh, we, I mean, that we have almost 400 paying members, paying to be members of Kappa and to teach and to supervise. They don't get paid. It's hard, and we always need more, but it's not impossible. I think, I think a, a big issue is, is a kind of phobia about uh, computers. Uh -huh. When you say 400, does that include the Chinese members uh, or just the... No, no, that's, those are the Western members, Western. mainly American, some Canadian, some Australian, a couple of European and some South American. Uh, people have to speak English in order to either be our students or be our teachers. So uh -huh. Now, you brought in psychoanalytically trained psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, uh, all equally part of the Kappa program. Was that difficult to do? Were there conflicts, you know, between the psychiatrists and the social workers and things like no. that? Because we see that sometimes happening in, in the United States. No. Uh, I mean, the one thing about Kappa is that we don't have, for some reason, we don't have fights. We are all good-natured people. There's never been any... Um, anything about people's, uh, whether people are psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, or whether they're psychoanalysts or psycho uh, psychodynamic psychotherapists. We just don't fight. We have all kinds of people on our board, and we get along well. Uh -huh. Our board meetings are usually a lot of laughter and kidding around and Everything seems to work out very well. Right. You know, I know that there are cultural issues uh, in regard to family relationship, in, this is in regard to China as compared to the United States, the various roles of parents and men and women, the expectation that uh, different cultures have for their children, and even, even the effect of um, political factors, such as the impact of the Cultural Revolution. I know from my work with some uh, Chinese students that, that I, I, I appreciate how the Cultural Revolution affected their parents' generation. And, and are American teachers and therapists able to understand and deal with these issues? How does that work? On my... I guess my second visit to China, I gave a lecture and a young woman came up to me and her first question was, are you Jewish? 
And I said, yes. I said, why? She said, well, you look Jewish. And I said to her, I said, come on, honey. You know, all of us Westerners look the same to, to you people in China. And she said, well, I've just spent the last year in Israel. And I'm doing my doctoral dissertation on a, um, a comparison of, of um, reactions to the Holocaust and reactions to the Japanese invasion. I said, we talked, she said soon she's going to be doing one on the reaction to the Cultural Revolution, which is probably closer to the reaction to the Holocaust. I think that people and their parents um, everywhere have been traumatized in one way or another. And the responses, I think, to trauma, that kind of trauma that the parents had or that they themselves had, that the responses are the way human beings respond. And uh, that if you're doing the kind of therapy that we do, it's understandable. So I don't think that the the problem was the Cultural Revolution rather than the Holocaust or uh-huh. something else like that makes any difference in the treatment. I think, you know, we have had, what, 200 people in analysis, 300, and another two or 300 in psychotherapy. And uh, these seem to go more or less the way uh, psychotherapies and analyses go with um, Americans. So I think you have to know about human beings. Uh, What are the requirements for each student in regard to their own treatment? How many, are there a set number of classes that they have to attend, or is there a step-by-step each year? Uh, How how does it work in order to get through the program? There's the basic program, which is a two-year program, Classes meet for four hours a night for 30 weeks a year. On, Sk- on Skype? On, well, we, we use Zoom. Zoom, right, okay. <laughs> okay. But they meet for four hours a night, and in that four hours there's a theory class, there's a technique class, and there's a continuous case seminar. So that every student going through the program, and there are 10 people, each year we accept 40 people out of about 150 or 60 applicants, divide them up into four classes. So there are four first-year classes and four second-year classes, and that's what they take. They also have one hour of individual supervision a week. And um, of the people, of the 40 people who graduate from the basic training program, slightly over half are invited to attend the advanced training program, which is... The same thing, four hours of class, an hour of individual supervision, and so on. With regard to treatment, we don't require that they have treatment. But I would say of the 40 students who enter, probably 35 apply for treatment. And they apply either for analysis or for psychotherapy or start in psychotherapy and sort of drift into an analysis, seeing their, their, their person, uh, you know, more frequently. So that our psychotherapy treatment is one to two sessions a week, and our analytic treatment is three to five sessions a week. 
After people graduate from the advanced program, there are lots of electives they can take. They can take an elective and how to supervise. They can be a student teacher. And many, many of the people now who are graduating from the advanced program have applied to American institutes for distance training in analysis. And there are currently, I think, 23 people in distance analytic training at APSA institutes and another five or six at other institutes. And some have moved to America for analytic training. What was the reason that you decided not to require treatment or analysis? I mean, the, the American Psychoanalytic Institutes, of course, that's part of the, part of the requirement. <laughs> Not, it, it's not the requirement for the psychotherapy training at, uh, at, at American Institute. Right, okay. We decided not to because, I mean, we didn't think we could get enough analysts to do I see, that. okay. But 30, <laughs> 35 out of 40 is pretty pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they all, and actually some people, I think, come to our training because they know that we offer, uh, the tuition covers the classes and the supervision, but uh, they pay for the uh, their therapy, and it's low fee payment. We didn't know what to charge in the beginning. We were charging five. We were we were suggesting to the analysts and therapists that they charge five dollars a session. Well, now I think our minimum fee is fifty dollars a session. But we we didn't know anything. I mean, this was all sort of developed as we went along. Is there any relationship or interaction between Kappa and the Chinese government? No. I went to China three days after the big earthquake in Sichuan province, and I set up a training of first responders. We trained about 3,000 people. I mean, I didn't do the training. I was the organizer. So the Chinese government knows that we're there but we have no relationship with them. Uh, when there's a problem in China, like there were maybe five years ago, there were suicides at an apple factory in southern uh. China. They, the government immediately went to the Chinese Psychological Society, and they immediately sent someone down there who happened to be a Kappa person. And he came back and he said, you know, it's not that they're being overworked. It's that they're kids. They're far from home. It's like college kids who suicide. They need a mental health clinic. And the government said, oh. And three days later, they set up an air-conditioned mental health clinic there. And uh, so the government, I don't know why or how, but they are benignly disposed toward psychotherapy in some general way or mental health treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in China with you when the first class graduated in Beijing in 2010, and yeah. it seemed to be a very emotional experience as many of the students met their teachers and supervisors and therapists in person. Uh, do you have any impressions or memories of, of that event? Yes, I do. It's like that every year. There's hugging and kissing and crying and they also often are meeting their classmates for the first time. I and mean, we're in 30 different cities in China, so that they may have never met their classmates except on Skype. And sometimes after class, they get 
guess what? Take out Chinese food and sit around and eat and talk. <laughs> well, you're describing one uh, unique phenomena that we often don't see here in the United States, and that is where uh, analysands were hugging their analysts. Right. Uh, and and I, I know that more recently there's been the development of a code of ethics for students and graduates of the CAPA program. Can you discuss how it came about and, and why it was necessary? Uh, well, we, we always had a kind of minimalist uh, code of ethics. And um, then it, partly the Chinese Psychological Society has, a, has, has, has always had a very good code of ethics. And now they have just rewritten it and it's even better. So all of our students sign their code of ethics, the Chinese Psychological Society Code of Ethics, which is both in English and in Mandarin, so we're sure they read it. I think um, that, the, you know, our vision of, of some of our, some of us have a vision of Asians as being rather cool. Well, the, the Chinese people that I know and who are in Kappa are very huggy and kissing. I mean, I get at least two emails a day saying, Dear Grandma, you know, and um, they, uh, that they were hugging their analysts made all of us a bit nervous. And the analysts, too, have needed to back off from some of that. But the, the co there, there have been no serious ethical violations um, between therapists and, and students or, or patients. And we spend a lot of time talking about ethics. There's a tendency, they speak about Kappa as a big family that they are happy to belong to. And... Um, I think we, we Americans often feel the same way, too, about it. And we need to keep our distance, what shall I say, in, in like the hugging of, of, of the patient when you're in China. Are there any other examples that come to mind about uh, ethics issues that the code needed to uh, address? Or No, it, uh, it just got very specific about dual relationships, which, which is the big issue, that you do not have dual relationships with your patients. And uh, there, there are a lot of people, training people in psychotherapy in China and Chinese people training other Chinese people in psychotherapy. And from what I hear... Um, there, and this is, this is just, you know, gossip, so it, it should be noted it's gossip, that, that they are not as strict as we are about an ethical code. And one issue often has to do um, with money, you know, um, financial dealings or gift giving. Mm -hmm. and, uh, gift, gift giving is a very, very big thing in China. Remember when I was an intern, you could only accept something that you could eat in one day. <laughs> Some people can eat more than other people can. Nonetheless, there are limits to what you can eat. But I think um, gift giving is, is, is a very important part of Chinese culture. And not accepting gifts or, you know, dealing with it or talking about it in advance if you're going to go to China, I think is uh, has been an important thing for, for some of our 
uh, therapists and and our teachers too. I mean, it's it, obviously the code of ethics is less strict with teachers about accepting gifts. But, right. Uh, I, I remember when during that 2010 graduation when I met in person uh, a supervisee that I had supervised for for a couple of years. He gave me a very lovely scroll, you know, a Chinese <laughs> scroll, and and uh, I, I certainly felt. To reject it would have been a, 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 a very difficult thing. So of course I, I graciously accepted it, and it it hangs in my in my living room, you know. But um, but I understand what you mean. Um, what do you see uh, for the future uh, for the Kappa program? Well, I think we right now we're debating about whether to have a child program. There have been lots of requests from our students and also from, from some of our teachers who are child people. And we may be setting up a child program, which would sort of be modeled on, um, you know, two years, four hours a night. I think one of the issues is, is going to be um, the supervision of a child program. I, I'm not a child person. I don't know how, I don't know enough about it. I think some people are treating youngish children on Skype or on Zoom, uh -huh. and I, I don't know anything much about it, but that's that's interesting. I think that we will continue to do what we're doing. We will hope that um, more of our graduates um, get analytic training, and uh, that they are beginning to set up uh, programs there, um, training in Chinese in Mandarin. You know, our thing is. When somebody applies to Kappa, they first are interviewed by our English as a second language person, and about half the applicants are turned down right away because their English isn't good enough. And then they have two interviews by Kappa teachers or supervisors and so on. And I, sh I should mention, in China, kids begin to learn English in nursery school, and so the younger someone is, the better their English is. But I think it would be nice if China could be teaching uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy in Mandarin. We also have a translation program with the university um, where our teachers uh, suge suggest books or papers from our syllabi, and they are translating and publishing our stuff. And it's a very good translation program. The government right now is not happy with translation um, they they're worried that uh, people in China may become too Westernized. So there's a little bit of a halt there. But um, the the future of Kappa is as I, as I often say, you know, when you're ready to take over, we're going to go home. And then everybody says, oh, don't go, don't go. But I think they will they will take take over training. And uh, they will uh, presumably, do, just as everyone else has, develop their own kind of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. So you think there'll be a time when the current graduates of Kappa will take over the program? Yeah, I think in one city there's already a psychotherapy institute where they're using mainly the Kappa curriculum and uh, they're teaching in Mandarin. So we'll see what happens with well, that. But they also have some American teachers. Well, I'm sure you must be uh, very proud of 
of the way the program has developed, and I, I'm sure it must give you a great deal of satisfaction to realize that it went from zero to the to the big success that it is, and and it's all really due to your creative efforts. Well, it's it's not my creative efforts, really. I mean, I would like to say, oh yes, I'm proud. It's really, you know, the song. I'm just a girl who can't say no. People kept <laughs> people kept asking, "Would you do this? Would you find a supervisor? Would you do that?" It really developed because um, the students wanted it. Uh, unlike the other programs, there are other programs in China, which were developed with universities, and we, at one point, a university wanted an affiliation with us and they insisted that all their residents take our program and the residents hated it and were terrible and we backed out of that so we really are responsive to the students and it's what they've done that made this happen so. well this has been a very uh, interesting experience talking to you right now and i i hope the uh, information that you've described will be useful and I'm sure it'll be very interesting to to people who hear it and I want to thank you again for for joining me on this podcast well thank you very much for having me and I hope some of the people who listen will get in touch with me and perhaps teach or supervise or treat for capital we always need more people okay would, would you like to give how they can reach you yeah, they can reach me uh, by email. It's Elise, E-L-I-S-E, dot Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at Yale, Y-A-L-E, dot E-D-U. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been such a great pleasure and enjoyable process to talk with you. Thank you. And for me, too. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. Right. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you a pleasant day.